Good morning. For a second time, I said it once, but again, good morning. Um, we, of course, are continuing in our Exodus series, and today we'll be in chapter 13. And so go ahead and flip your Bibles there and, and get prepared. If you haven't been with us, uh, I won't recap our whole series thus far, but I will um, catch you up on what we looked at last week. We saw the Israelites actually coming out of the, 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 the basically the, the city, so to speak, of Egypt. We're in a place now where they're in the wilderness in the land in Egypt. They've yet to cross the Red Sea, but they have come out from the midst of the Egyptians. The Passover has taken place, and uh, we are waiting for the crossing of the Red Sea. And so we looked at last week, Ben took us through their deliverance from Egypt by God's judgment, and it was this deliverance happened by means of the blood of a lamb, and this was the very first Passover. And God judged the nation of Egypt and struck down the firstborn males of both man and beast uh, for all who had not covered their doorposts in the blood of a lamb. This judgment was entirely warranted. Egypt had oppressed and enslaved God's chosen people for 400 years, and they had treated the Lord, the one true God, with utter contempt. And as we have made so clear in our teaching through Exodus, every single plague and every single act of judgment served as a strike against the gods of Egypt. There were many gods that constituted the pantheon of Egypt, and Every one of them had a role, and a lot of those roles overlapped, and each plague was a direct judgment against them, and the text doesn't explain which ones per se, but that's not really the point. We know already that the Lord has said, I am judging Egypt. I am judging every man, every beast, and the gods of Egypt in righteousness. And so at this point, we are so close to being out of the land of Egypt, but in a very real sense, Israel has already been delivered from their midst, and um, they're, they're still journeying, and there's a direct path from Egypt to Israel. They didn't take that path, and we're going to see next week why, but for this week, there are two institutes given in this text, and we're going to be looking at both of them, and um, God willing, we will see uh, how profound they are for us even today. And so, let us read the text, and if you are able, please stand at the reading of God's word. We will read the text, and then we will pray. Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hands or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Let us pray. Lord God, worthy are you to be worshipped this morning. You have established salvation for your people. You have set covenant love on your people. And at every point in covenantal history, you have revealed your good and sovereign will to rescue and redeem those who are yours, to set them apart, and to establish true reverent worship in their hearts. And so I pray that today we would see you for who you are, that our eyes would be opened even more by the power of your spirit through your word, that we would behold you and your glory, and we would be stirred to worship and thanksgiving in light of the redemption that is ours. Please have your will and your way this morning, and I pray that you would be magnified in us and through us for your namesake. Thank you for the love, the mercy, and the care you have always shown those whom you love and those whom you have set your love on in Christ Jesus. We praise your name today. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. And so we have in this section two statutes, 
two statutes are given to Israel in between their deliverance and in between the crossing of the Red Sea. These statutes were already given to Israel in advance in the previous chapter. Moses alludes to them. He, he actually uh, gives the people fair warning that these holidays are going to be established as we are delivered. And now that they have come out of the midst of, Israel, of Egypt, they are established, they will establish these. And so it's, it's just another reminder that when you enter the land, last week we saw particular instructions on practicing the Passover. If you remember, only those who feared the Lord in circumcision were allowed to participate in the Passover meal. This is because circumcision for the father of a home and for, and, and for his male children was the sign of the covenant. And for the sojourners among Israel who feared the Lord and were God-fearers, they too could participate in Passover only if they had the mark of the covenant. And so in what we are looking at today, it, it has to be seen in this covenantal light that this is for the people of God who bear the mark of the covenant and who belong to the Lord their God. And so we first see the bread of affliction. I'm starting in verse 3 because later in verse 11, we're going to pick back up with what we first see in verses 1 through 2. Um, and so we're really going to, in the order here we're looking at is first the, the, the feast of unleavened bread. So our first point today is called the bread of affliction. The bread of affliction. Just as the Lord had commanded Israel to establish the Passover holiday in order to remember the first Passover, here another holiday is given in the same month, the month of Abib. So the first half of this month was dedicated to the Passover, and the second half of this month is, well, in the second half begins this uh, week of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for a whole week, they were to eat, nothing, eat only unleavened bread, and they were to remove it from their midst. Not only that, but they came together in this final feast to celebrate the week. And this is because during Passover, the Passover, Israel was commanded to remove all the leaven from their homes and to eat only unleavened bread during this exodus. And there's two reasons given for this. We, we know of two reasons from the text, and that is this. The reason, number one, is leaven is often a metaphor for sin. Leaven is often a metaphor for sin. You see this, you hear this refrain often in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If any of you make sourdough, you know what I'm talking about, or any bread, I guess. Um, it's, a little goes a long way, and it's often a metaphor for sin. And because bread is a metaphor for life and sustenance. And so if you are, if the bread of life is, has even a little sin, there's danger there. It's because if it's not removed from the source, if leaven is not removed from the source, it will simply spread. It simply spreads. Therefore, Israel was to remove all the leaven from their homes as a sign of consecration 
unto the Lord. No remnant of the leaven of Egypt was to remain in their midst. You actually see later during their time in the wilderness and even right before the crossing of the Red Sea, Israel's like, we can go back. We had it pretty nice in Egypt. Did you? We, we had it pretty nice. And they moan and groan about the meats and the breads they had while in the wilderness. Because sin promises comfort. It promises satisfaction. There's a, a little phrase you've probably heard before, but it's so true. Sin always overpromises and it underdelivers. It always overpromises and underdelivers. And leaven is a metaphor for sin. And so their participation, their, their participation in the holiday and their practice of it was a reminder to them that they were to be consecrated unto the Lord. But then two, leaven quite literally causes dough to rise, and it takes time to do so. As I mentioned earlier, many of you bake bread here, and I at least know from the perspective of watching my wife make bread, it's, uh, it's always an event. If the, if the sourdough starter is off or if it hasn't done its job, then everything's ruined. If it, if it got forgot about and uh, the bread wasn't made in time or the dough wasn't made in time, it's no good. Somehow you have to start. I don't know why. All I know is Kate tells me, oh, I can't do the bread now. It's no good. Okay, I have no clue. But leaven takes work to maintain and it's not easy to deal with. You don't deal with it in haste. It takes time. And so Israel was instructed by the Lord to eat nothing but unleavened bread as they waited for the Exodus. And so this was a, a really a practical commandment. But the holiday is given as a reminder. And in Deuteronomy 16.3, in this recapitulation of the command and of the statute of this holiday, the Lord says, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you, re you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. And so this bread of the holiday was always seen in the minds of Israel as the bread of affliction because it was not easy being delivered. The Lord did everything, but there was still affliction surrounding the circumstances. They left house and home in, a, in, in this triumphal procession and the Lord was magnified, but think about your family living somewhere for 400 years and it, the circumstances are terrible. You are, are enslaved and oppressed, but it's still the home you know. And the Lord says, don't deal with the leaven, but eat unleavened bread because you will, you will be delivered in haste. And so this was a perpetual reminder for the people of God that we have been delivered from the house of slavery and 
in affliction, we were delivered from affliction. And so this is a reminder of the Lord's goodness to them. And we see that that's so clear from verses 8 and 10. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. This holiday was to be like a sign on the hand and a memorial between the eyes. This is most likely just metaphorical, but there have been some sects of, uh, of Judaism that actually bind pieces of scripture. They would write out scripture and roll it up or put it in a box. And during this holiday, they'll strap it to their head. So there's a little box on their forehead with scripture written in it. And if you were to ever travel to um, the, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, if you, if you know that the Temple of the Mount is now occupied by Muslims, but um, it's a very contentious situation, but, but Jews travel there out of reverence as a holy pilgrimage, and they pray on the Western Wall because it's the last standing wall of the Temple. And many of them, you might see, have a band of leather wrapped around their arm and around their hand. And it's to be a reminder to them. It's a sign on their hand of what the Lord their God has done for them. And they may also have the box of scripture. Uh, that name is called a phylactery. And so while many consider this literal, it, it really is meant to say, look, treat this Treat this holiday as your reminder for all of life. Whatever you do with your hands, whatever you set your mind on, be filled with the redemptive acts of God that his law might be on your mouth. Be filled with remembrance of what the Lord your God has done for you and live by his command and live by his command. This is the point of the holiday. It was a sign for all of life. And so the bread of affliction reminded Israel where they came from, that they were redeemed from the house of slavery. And it also was a reminder that they were wholly consecrated unto the Lord. And so now we see in our second point, consecration Consecration and redemption. Starting in verse 11, we have our second statute from the text. And that is the statute of firstborn consecration. And this is the explanation of what the chapter opens up with in verses 1 and 2. And upon, upon initial reading of this, you, you might think, okay, that, that sounds good, sure. Another, another holiday, another thing to do. Well, it's not really a holiday, but another practice seems to make sense, but there's something quite profound actually happening here, and it's implied in the text, and so we need to do our due diligence and try to unpack it this morning. Quite literally, whatever male is the first to open the womb, 
whether of man or beast, is the Lord's. And this is what God is teaching his people. Everything belongs to me. The first fruits of life belong to me. Consider that. Before any command of a tithe for money or grain or animals, the Lord makes it so plain that the first fruits of your womb are mine. There are two exceptions given to this consecration. One are donkeys. They're to be redeemed with a lamb. And I believe that's because donkeys were necessary for farming. They were like oxen. They were to be, uh, they were used in farming and were necessary to the establishment of Israel's agriculture. Also, and so they were redeemed with a lamb. But if you didn't have a lamb to redeem them, you still owed it to the Lord. You broke its neck. You broke its neck as worship. And then two, sons were to be redeemed. And it doesn't, the text doesn't tell us how to redeem a son. Later in the law, we find out. We find out. Down the road, we find out that the Levites, so the sons of the tribe of Levi, they were set apart for priestly service. Some were simply service, uh, servants in the temple and we have one of those clans among the Levites actually become the priesthood. And the, the Lord is so gracious and he says, I will take the Levites on behalf of all the firstborn sons of Israel. He's not putting them to death, but he's saying, I will take them into my priestly service and they will serve as the redemption for Israel's sons. And if there were not enough priests to cover the number of sons, you could buy the redemption. You could pay for it. And if you were poor, there were other substitutes for the redemption. So God's mercifully saying, your sons are mine. They belong to me. And yet I will provide a way for them to be redeemed. This should, some light bulbs hopefully are coming on. I'm sure they are. Everything else, though, was consecrated to the Lord in, with death. Everything else was given as a sacrifice. And this is the beginning of tithing. And so the perspective we even have as the people of God today is that everything's the Lord's. I'm always reminded, Paul writes, what do we have, what do you have that you haven't received? What is yours that you haven't received? Nothing. It's all the Lord's. And there's two, two perspectives to this. One is so plain that we've already discussed. Psalm 24 reveals it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It all belongs to him. Everything created belongs to the creator. It's his privilege as creator to own everything. And so he does what he wants. Psalm 115 says, our God sits in the heavens. He does what he wants. No one can argue against that because you are not God. And that's, that's a given in faith. It's acknowledging that you are God and I'm not. And therefore I submit to you. But this is something different 
even in the consecration. This is something different because all things belong to him. So what is it about the firstborn males? Well, the Lord is setting apart these firstborn males for another reason. And this is revealed to us in the commandment to teach our children about why we're doing this. It is because the Lord revealed his strong hand and redeemed Israel from Egypt by killing the firstborn males of both man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. See, Israel's redemption cost something. Redemption is never free. It's never free. It costs something. Because in the very name, the the very word redemption, it's to take something from belonging in one place and moving it or acquiring it. It's why when you return your recycled bottles or cans, you're redeeming them for money because there's an exchange that has to take place. There's value in that bottle or can and while you own the bottle and can, you own its inherent value. So you make an exchange at the, the centers, the recycling centers, and they give you money. That's a very simple example. But th- th- this is what redemption is. Same thing with a coupon. A coupon has l- rules and limitations, but within those rules and limitations, there's a value to it. And when you exchange that coupon, when you turn that coupon in, you are redeeming the goods or services within the limitations of the coupon. And so redemption always costs something. And in God's just judgment, Egypt, Egypt paid the price for Israel's deliverance from their midst. Israel's salvation was a display of God's strong hand as he righteously judged the land of Egypt. And it was a picture that redemption always has a cost. It sets the precedent for Israel as a picture to them that redemption always costs something. And this isn't the first time we've seen this even in the scriptures. From God covering Adam and Eve in their nakedness, he sacrificed an animal Where did that animal skin come from? It came from somewhere. That animal paid paid the price to cover their nakedness. From the covering of Adam and Eve's nakedness to the ram that redeems Isaac on top of Mount Moriah when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son. The whole while in that narrative, Abraham says, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide. And at the last minute, a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, an unblemished ram, is given. That ram paid the price for Isaac's redemption. And so this is the theme of the scriptures. Throughout the history of Israel, they not only had this statute of consecration as a perpetual reminder... But the law of Moses demanded that they pay the price for their sins through the sacrifice of goats and bulls. And so we see these pictures that then the law takes and makes a system from. And we know now that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
That's why they had to offer them continually, year after year. This was a picture for Israel that a greater redemption was necessary. The blood of goats and bulls was not valuable enough to redeem them from their sins. And so they did it every year as a reminder. But that's all it could serve was reminding the people of the holiness of God and the depth of their depravity. But we have the good news today. The author of Hebrews says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So basically Jesus is identifying with Psalm 40. He's, and he's saying, look, Psalm 40 is messianic. And though David wrote it, it's for Christ saying, the Lord, the Father, has not actually delighted in all these sacrifices, but they served a purpose. But I now have come with the body you've prepared for me, and I now have come to do the will of the Father. That's what Psalm 40 is talking about. It's prophetic. And the author of Hebrews is, is explaining that for us. He does away with the first, the system of sacrifices, in order to establish the second. Well, what's the second? And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ for once and all. That's the second. That Jesus Christ has offered his body once and for all, the eternal sacrifice. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So those who are set apart, called by God, they will be forever sanctified. They will be forever perfected because of the, the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ and the cost of his blood. Redemption costs something. Redemption costs something. The redemption that was the exodus was a foreshadowing that the law prophesied about that Israel was waiting for all along. It was foreshadowing a redemption. And it's the same redemption that all people everywhere need. And it's the redemption that we confess as Christians. And it's this. I'm going to quote, I'm going to read a part of the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. You see, redemption happened for us. And it's only been by one means. And as Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one eternal redemption. And that's in Christ Jesus. His blood being entirely sufficient to cleanse us of our sins forever. And now we serve with a sanctified conscience knowing that I no longer have to offer anything because the, the price has been paid forever. And not only that, I hope you noticed both in the Hebrews text I quoted and in the Apostles' Creed how they so quickly jump from Jesus paying the price and being established as the Son of God, to he will come and he will rule. In Hebrews, it, it quotes from Psalm 110 that his enemies, he, 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 his enemies will be established under his feet like a footstool. And then here in the Apostles' Creed, it says, he will come to judge the quick and the dead, which they're just quoting scripture. Because Jesus will rule and reign. That's the hope of our redemption. If our sins were just covered for a time, then sins former have been looked over. But what about sins to come? What about our actual salvation from the here and now? This is why in the New Testament we see Paul write things like, for those who are being saved, meaning our salvation is already but not yet. We're still here. We've yet to resurrect. We've yet to be united with God in the truest sense. And because Jesus is sitting now at the right hand of the Father, we will be forever delivered from our enemies. Because his enemies will be made his footstool, that means his enemies are our enemies and they will be made his footstool. And so our hope is not that, just that we are being saved from sin, but we are being saved from every evil, every tyranny, everything that seeks to harm us. Just as Israel was delivered from their oppressors, so shall we be delivered from ours. And this is what redemption is. And so Christ is not only the lamb of God, but he's the lion of Judah who will establish his total victory at the last. And those of us who belong to him through faith will be joined to him in this victory. And we, like Paul says, will be more than conquerors. We will be more than conquerors. And so, just like Peter says, we too proclaim that there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Church, you have been bought with a price. 
Therefore, glorify God. Christ's blood is costly. It is not cheap. He bids you to come and die and accept his offer of grace. But it is both grace and law because when he says follow me, he means it. it. Following him does not mean we meet him on our terms, but rather we submit to his. Church, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. And for our last point, I want to look at one of the most conspicuous themes in this text this morning. It's so obvious, but I think in our very individualistic culture, we, we read over these things and don't, don't give it much thought. I think that's changing in our church, but I say this as one who's read this for years. And only in the last few seasons does this mean something different now. And so I want to highlight that. And that's this, the theme of generational remembrance and that's the that's the title of this point generational remembrance in both the feast of unleavened bread and in the consecration of firstborn males we see the emphasis of remembrance in the lord's perfect wisdom he knows us and understands our frame we are very forgetful and fickle people but remembrance is what keeps our faith alive and active and fruitful. The practice of remembrance is like a whetstone to a dull blade. Remembrance sharpens us and maintains us. The scriptures are filled with commands to remember, feasts and holidays for remembrance, and songs and prayers of remembrance, so that we would remember to worship God as we ought. But remembrance is not meant to stop at the individual. Here we see that built into the very ordinances of remembrance, we find the pattern of generational discipleship. That's in, both, that's in verses 8 through 10 and verses 14 through 16. And it's so plain. It's so plain. From the very beginning, God created worshipers who would multiply into worshipers who would then multiply into more worshipers. The Lord has had the prerogative of filling the earth with worshipers from the very beginning. And that design did not change for Israel. And it has not changed for us either. We as God's people are responsible for both establishing and training the next generation in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This training primarily takes place in the home. The text so plainly teaches us that fathers, but mothers too, are commanded by God to teach their children the ways of the Lord as they themselves remember his deeds and obey his commands. This is the way. This is the way. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house 
of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. It's so plain that we are commanded to teach our children what the Lord has done for us. To look back at his strong hand revealed throughout history and to say, look what the Lord has done for us. For us. This is the design of God. We have to train our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Society is not going to do it, especially considering our disobedient culture. Society's not going to do it. The schools aren't going to do it. Whether they're government-run or private, it doesn't matter. They're not going to do it. And the government ones are actually going to try to undo everything you're doing in the home. I promise that. Even the church can't do it. Faithful churches will assist you in the godly raising of your children, but they can't do it for you. They can't do it for you. We as a church will strive to equip you for the work of ministry in your home, but we cannot do it for you. I have seen at least two generations of Christians leave the church because their parents unfortunately thought the youth group was sufficient that the church had it under control. That's not the way. It has been instructed to us, it has been given to us by God to raise our children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. We have to do it. And we can do it because it's God's design. If we refuse to because we're scared or we're nervous, then that's simply unbelief. You're simply rejecting the, the ordinances of God and saying, you don't know as much as I do or you don't understand, Lord. But he says so plainly, teach your children my ways. Teach your children my ways. This discipleship only happens when you yourselves as parents have first committed the whole of your life to Christ and his ways. Half-hearted discipleship will not win your children. God is gracious and his, his divine election is often mysterious. But the overwhelming promise of the scriptures is that if you follow the Lord with all your heart and you fear and love him and you give your parenting to him, he will establish your, your children for a thousand generations. His promises will be good to them from generation to generation. It's overwhelming in the scriptures. And so we have to take him at his word. So let's commit, let's do it. Let's commit to remembering the Lord our God and for teaching it to our children.
It's as if, this is my paraphrase. This was helpful for me, so perhaps you as well. It's as if the text is saying, as you commit to remembering my strong hand of salvation, teach your children my ways because this is their story too. This is their story too. And so as we draw to a conclusion, as we bring this to a close, the charge that I want to give us all is is quite simple. May we remember the salvation that has come by the strong hand of the Lord. And this is how we remember. To remember faithfully, we must commit to his ways, upholding his statutes and his commandments. We must meditate on his law, binding it to our hands and our heads that we would be faithful to speak it with our mouths. We must seriously consider the price of our redemption. Our salvation was not cheap, but costly, and therefore we must glorify God. And finally, we must train our children in the way of the Lord and pass all of these things on to them. By faith, we must reckon that our story of redemption will be theirs too. Let's pray. Gracious are you, Father, for having faithful love to us who were once far off. We all who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Jesus, we praise you that you have you submitted yourself to the Father in complete obedience. You have both fulfilled the law and its fulfillment is now offered to us as we walk with you in the spirit and in truth. And so I pray that we would be encouraged by the word because this is your will for us. This is your design. May we not grow weary in doing good, but whatever stage of life we're in, whether we're parents or grandparents, aunts, uncles, or simply friends, to those with children, I pray that we would be faithful to remember your goodness, remember your strong hand of salvation, and we would pass it on to the next generation that the earth might be filled with your glory as more and more people worship you. This is all for you, and we thank you for your word this morning, which corrects us, instructs us, and encourages us always. May you be honored in and through us always. Amen.